the optimal life. Uh, Jen and Sarah, welcome. Uh, I can't believe that we're sitting here and 10 and a half years later, approximately, um, since that, that date, uh, I believe it was in March of 2013, when uh, your mother's life was taken. Um, I can't believe that it's been 10 and a half years that somebody that's standing outside in broad daylight in downtown Cleveland on just a regular day and nobody still has been able to find justice for your mother's for your mother and, and put away your mother's killer. Talk to us, Jen. How do you feel 10 and a half years later uh, as we're sitting here today? Is I'm sure there's a, a whirlwind of emotions. How do you put this into words? Yeah, thanks, Nate. Um, so it's difficult to put into words. I would say I feel exhausted. That's definitely the first, you know, emotion that comes to mind physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted. It's been 10 and a half years, which is a really long time. Um, but at the same time, there are moments where I feel very empowered and strong um, because I've had to be. Uh, strong. And I would say I definitely feel wiser um, from what I've gone through. I've, I've learned a lot. And, you know, I wish I knew some of the stuff that I know now back then. Uh, when you say you wish you knew some of the stuff now back then, what, what, what exactly does that mean? What do you wish you knew back then? You know, I knew I wish I knew what resources were available in the community to support individuals that are experiencing um, hostile home environments or um, domestic violence. I wish that I knew that individuals who are approaching that final step step towards safety is the most dangerous time. It makes sense logically when somebody's, you know, when it was told to me, I'm like, of course, that's the most dangerous time, a loss of control, uh, you know, from the other side um, and power. But at the time I was my mom's number one cheerleader. I was motivating her to, you know, push toward this future of freedom and happiness and love that she so deserved. And I fully believed that she was going to get there and she was she had gone through so much and had gotten so strong in the process and i could just envision her coming out the other side when you say that she had gone through so much she was almost there i assume you're talking about a years long multiple 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 years of getting to the divorce is that what you're talking about yeah so i mean her you know, the marriage itself was pretty tumultuous. And then the divorce process of, you know, almost two years. And when I say getting to that point, it's getting to the finish line, getting to trial. Mm -hmm. And so take us back then that day when she's outside the court house, the building where her attorney's office is, um, is that literally the day before trial begins? So it was two days before trial. It was supposed to start uh, March 26th of 2013. And she was downtown on that Sunday, the 24th, outside her attorney's office that day. So she's downtown outside on a Sunday. 
and give us the details at, at a high level. It's been very well reported. But what happens? She's trying to get in. The attorney's telling her he'll he, he's going to be right down. I mean, give us some of the details leading up to the murder. Sure. And I mean, Sarah might be better at chiming in here just from the reporting standpoint. But from what I you know understand from what happened that day was she was, you know, asked to meet her attorney downtown that day for a last minute meeting before trial. Um, the time kept getting moved. And then she was down there texting, letting her attorney know she was waiting. And um, he never came to open the doors. And as she was going back to her car, because it was March and it was cold in, in Cleveland, Ohio, um, she was attacked and, and stabbed to death. So, yeah. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, I can I can jump in and just say, you know, we've interviewed so many people over the years and most recently in our podcast work for Aliza, her story at 10 years with Cleveland Jewish News um, about that day and their experiences of that day. And she had been in touch with friends and family, you know, throughout the day. And she was getting close to this trial, obviously. And she was nervous. She was nervous that her attorneys were not prepared, that they weren't ready for trial, that they didn't have the evidence and exhibits that they needed ready to go. And it is natural in these situations, a contested divorce trial like this, that she and her attorney would be spending a lot of time together, a lot of last minute loose ends to tie up before they got to that day. So I think um, it's Everybody, you know, she had a frustration with her attorneys that that was building, but she wanted to get this done and she wanted it. She wanted to win. She wanted to win. That's why she hired the Stafford and Stafford law offices and was working with Gregory Moore, her attorney. He had, I guess, moved the last time, at least our understanding is that he moved the meeting time. She parked on East 12th Street and walked down Erie View Plaza towards the door that if you're not familiar, it's sort of the connection. It's like a pedestrian space between the Galleria, the old shopping center, and then this brutalist building that is Erie View. And um, he never answered the door. So she stood outside for a minute, but it was cold. So she texts him, hey, I'm going back to my car. I don't, I don't know where you are, but I'm going back to my car to wait and starts to walk away. And as she walks away, what Cleveland police who have seen the tape, they actually have the murder on video. A man comes from the East 9th Street side, again, on this pedestrian walkway and comes up, surprises her and attacks her, stabbing her 11 times. She was transported to Metro Health Medical Center where she died within the hour. Okay, so she's talking to her attorney and the attorney is the only person essentially that we believe knows that she's down there. I mean, he he's probably the only one that knows exactly that she was there because she's texting and, Hey, I'm, I'm outside. He's saying I'll be there. And then she's saying, I'm going back to my car. It's cold. And then she has that fateful encounter with whoever this person was. Um, so, is it true that, uh, Sarah, is it true that the attorney also, while he was claiming he was there, was it was it true that his cell phone records pinged that he wasn't even in the area at that time? Yes, that's correct. So later on in the investigation, this was not immediate, but um, in 2014, uh, if I have my timeline straight, 
the FBI um, and Cleveland police raided the Stafford and Stafford law offices in connection with a few other cases that Gregory Moore had been involved with. Um, He was uh, he eventually entered a guilty plea to some of those crimes, indicating that he was, in fact, calling in bomb threats to courthouses around the area because he was not prepared for trial and sort of akin to um, like the dog ate my homework or, you know, pulling the fire alarm at school because you want to get out of the test. He was taking this obviously very dangerous and incredible step to call in these fake bomb threats that evacuated courthouses and postponed court dates that he was not personally prepared for. And he has admitted this in court. So as part of the investigations into those crimes, they raided his office and also um, subpoenaed his cell phone records. And they found that Greg Moore was not there at the time, even though he had been texting Elisa that he was present and that he would meet her there. Um, He was there earlier in the day and he was there later in the day after the murder had occurred. Mm. Uh, What would be I mean, that's a lot of circumstantial evidence to point at somebody, whether or not they were truly the one. Obviously, he wasn't. We don't believe he was the person that did this. Would you agree? I would agree that it seems like Greg Moore knows more than he's ever admitted. And he's never been willing to speak with investigators. He's uh, taken his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So he has never completed an interview with the Cleveland police. Um, Mm. That's what we know from investigators. Now, he's very much on their radar. What involvement he had or doesn't have, it's hard to say. But I think he certainly, there are unanswered questions there. Jen, who... Who else is out there who wanted your who hated your mother so much that they wanted to see her demise? I mean, there's obviously a chance and you're going to have to unmute yourself, but there's obviously a chance that this was a completely random act from some psychopath. Right. There's there's the less than one percent chance, but we have to still give it its due. But who else is out there then that would have wanted to see your mother no longer here? Um. Honestly, my mom was very well loved. Uh, I mean, you know, even just based on who showed up to her funeral and the commitment and dedication of the her friends, her colleagues, 10 plus years later, you know, my mom was some, she was a gentle soul. You know, nobody, she would not hurt a fly. And so, you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, she was going through, you know, a hostile divorce process, but in terms of the details of what happened that day, they're still unknown. And I mean, I don't know any more than, you know, what's been mentioned so far. I look at this from the research that I've done. I've looked at videos. I've looked at articles, uh, this Cleveland Jewish news. You mentioned the, the Cleveland Jewish news podcast that you recently put out, Sarah, which was tremendously done. I think it was a four part series. Um, Jen was involved with that as well. The Cleveland Jewish News also had articles reporting um, on some of the the civil suits against your father, who was involved uh, uh, in this civil suit. And there were some things that were said in this. I don't know what you can or cannot talk about, but some of the quotes in this article 
talked about how your mother said she was scared. She was scared of uh, uh, your father. Your mother was scared for her life. Um, there was a, a quote about how some police officer uh, claimed in the death deposition that your father asked him how to commit the quote unquote perfect murder. So after my mom was killed, um, and I believe it was in 20 later in the year in 2013, um, I worked with an probate attorney, Adam Freed to be appointed as executor of my mother's estate. Um, at that point, we received, you know, tons of documents, paperwork relevant to um, her assets, her, the divorce. And throughout the review of those documents, um, it was identified that she was made aware during her divorce process. Um, she had hired a forensic accountant who identified a forgery situation where there were accounts opened in her name without her knowledge. And then um, Sanford actually by Sanford. And then he also um, created power of attorneys documents that stated that he was given the right to take back the the funding. And he ultimately over a few year period moved all of that money back out of those accounts to my, of my mom's. And in the state of Ohio, um, whether someone knows about it or not, and if accounts opened in their name, it is considered theirs um, and moved all that money back to her account. But throughout that process and um, preparing for um, and collecting evidence, some of that involved um, depositions that were taken on behalf of the estate by um, the attorneys that were working on it. And so a couple of the quotes that you referenced are from documents. My mom documented everything. Um, she, you know, we learned this after my mom was killed. She, but, but uh, maybe a month or two before she was killed, she went to visit her mother in Florida and left a couple boxes of paperwork because she was essentially living out of her car. She kept all of her paperwork and anything that was important to her in her car where she felt like that was only safe space to leave anything um, since she was feeling like she was forced to stay in the home with um, my father. And so when she went to Florida, she left these boxes with me, just said they were court documented. She wanted to ensure they were safe. I didn't think anything of it, just put it you know, on a shelf. But after she was killed um, and I started working with Adam Freed, we were going through them. And that's where I learned that she was documenting the torture that she was living every single day. And mm. so that quote about her being scared, um, which, you know, can be found um, as public record. We, we used it as part of the evidence in our civil case. I mean, she describes her fear of becoming a statistic and being killed. She knew. I mean, she knew that there was something bad was going to happen to her. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak more to it than than what you've read and said, Nate, um, other than, yeah, I mean, I, I think anyone that hears that would agree it's completely disturbing. When was the last time you talked to your father? Oh, gosh. Not, I mean, maybe shortly after my mom died, but I mean, we've had, we've been estranged for a very long time, even before that. What about your siblings? What has this done to the entire family nucleus? You know, it's brutal. Um, 
in general, though, it's, you know, it's been quite dysfunctional and toxic for a long time. You know, growing up, I don't know that initially as kids, we realized how dysfunctional it was until we kind of got a better understanding of what was happening and um, what other families were like. Um, it was our normal for a while, um, but it's brutal. And, you know, everyone copes in in different ways. And I, you know, I can't really speak to anyone's experience but my own. But, um, you know, I have a brother that's living across the country, one that we are pretty estranged from, and then another brother that lives local to Cleveland. Um, and it's brutal. It's brutal even beyond, you know, just it's every single day. It's, you know, when people say things like, I just want you to get answers and find out, you know, what who who killed your mom so you can get closure. And for me, that that's such a difficult concept because for me, there is no such thing as closure here. There's no, you know, it's not, is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, what I was saying was, you know, I hate the term closure. Um, it's not something like that. This is a problem that we're trying to solve. And once we have the answer, we can wrap it up and, and close the door. This, you know, the, the murder of my mother is something that is going to be with me till the day I die. And it, it's a trickle down effect. It, It affects me. It affects my children. It affects my relationship with anyone in my life. It affects, you know, the work that I do. And some of it is, that it empowers me and inspires me, but some of it is, is brutal. You know, it's my, my kids don't, they're so young. They don't understand the concept of, of death completely. And they don't understand where, where's my mom. Right. Wow. So how old were you when this murder happened? I was 25 years old. 25, just starting your adult, true adult life. And this terrible thing, one of the worst things that could happen happens. I mean, I'm just trying to understand the phases that you've had to go through yourself. We don't know what your siblings have gone through. We don't know what your father's gone through. We don't know what your mother's attorneys, what any of her friends have gone through. I'm talking you, the daughter, her flesh and blood, someone that seemed to be closer to her than pretty much everybody in this world. It's had to be such a intense process. And I assume that there's different phases over the years where maybe the first phase is complete shock and awe. And then, so take us through at a real high level, Jen, if you could, for, yeah. people, that, for people that don't really have never understood grief or understood it to this level. Um, what have your phases been? Sure. So, um, and I should say you, you got it spot on, you know, my mom was my soulmate. Um, and even since her, I always knew every single day of my life, I knew how lucky I was that, um, we were so close and that we had the bond that we did. Um, she was more like a soul sister and, um, knew, knew me better than I knew myself and vice versa. And so to me, um, you know, I was a mama's girl since I was born. And the worst thing that could ever happen to me until I became a mother myself was if something happened to my mother. And on March 24th, that worst nightmare came true and in the most horrific way possible. Mm -hmm. Um, something I could have never even ever imagined. And so it's two things. One, it's very much the shock and trauma and unexpected nature and the brutality of it and the the 
the images that would go through my mind of based on the very little information that I knew about what actually happened. And that's what trauma will do. You, you try to put yourself there. Um, but the other interesting thing about trauma is you also seek information and details. And when you get that information from my learned experience, it's often even worse than what you could have imagined, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, so it started out, though, as as truly trauma. As much as I had gone, you know, my childhood was dysfunctional and difficult in a lot of ways. But my mom really did a great job of hiding a lot of it and and still meet, you know, making sure we felt loved all the time and supported. And then on March 24th, I learned very quickly that like my world is not safe. So, you know, it started out as total shock um, where, I mean, my initial reaction was to scream at the top of my lungs. I don't think I've ever done that before. And r repeatedly just scream. And it was probably just my body's way of letting out whatever was emotion was coming in and truly going numb where I couldn't feel how cold it was outside. And then for a few days, you know, we were afraid. Like my younger brother moved in with us. We were afraid. We were afraid to walk out to our mailbox and get mail. We didn't know if we were next. Um, we don't, you know, we didn't know who did this, but we didn't know if we were next. And, um, so truthfully afraid, I would say, let me just pause you real quick and just ask, are you, have you been, the, the fear was very high. I'm sure those first few days and weeks, have you experienced additional fear as you've continued to talk more about this over the years? Sure. I mean, I have to be careful, um, and I've even been warned by family members and other friends, you know, maybe this this is too dangerous, you know, or maybe it's it's too much. But for me, that's where the piece of lighting a fire inside of me and empowering me comes in where somebody has to speak up. My mom is not here to physically use her voice and advocate for herself. So I will be doing that no matter how afraid I am. I have to do it and I will do it. Um, and, you know, it's something where I think when you truly, truly love someone, that's what you do. Sure. You put that's to your powerful. side. Uh, and I'm going to ask Sarah to piggyback off of that because Sarah has been with you since day one, essentially when she was covering this case out down downtown Cleveland day within days of it happening. Uh, what what kind of progress and progression before we get back to the grieving stages, Sarah, have you seen uh, Jennifer go through in terms of finding her voice? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think everybody that knows Jen who's listening to this can attest that it's been incredible. Um, I didn't know Jen before this happened, so I can't speak to her state of mind and who she was Um when her mom was alive, I wish that I would have known Eliza and would have met Jenna much different circumstances. But initially, in those very early days after Eliza's death, Jen was frightened. It was clear. It was on her face. She was in mourning. She was in hiding in some ways. She was sort of a shell of herself is what we heard from friends, you know, that this sort of consumed her in a way that initially I think a lot of her friends and family were concerned about. I mean, again, there's no right way to grieve, um, but it 
it became her life. Um, and people were worried for her, particularly because there wasn't a lot of progress in the investigation. And how would Jen carry forward if there wasn't closure, quote unquote, although I know you just heard from her what that word now means to her. Right. What she did was there was sort of like a switch flipped when the Justice for Eliza movement took off and she began to fuel all of that energy and, and angst around the grief into purpose. And it became what motivated her to to live for her mom, to share her mom with all of us who didn't get to know her beforehand. All of the Eliza-isms and things that the marks that Eliza left on her life, she wanted them to be public. And so she took that legacy forward in a, in a very public way. And it was not just about the way she died anymore. It was also about the way she lived and that Jen was going to keep that memory alive and vibrant because of the way she talked about her mom, because she wasn't going to let this drop away, that the mm. attention wasn't going to, we weren't just going to turn the page. She was to make sure of that. And that became a singular focus for her. And I think, you know, her family has rallied around her in that, but she has at times been alone in that challenge that she has felt the loneliness. She has felt the support of many family and friends and people who loved Eliza, but it's meant nothing more than to her. And so um, you've seen her just blossom in that growth. And she is such a badass now. This is a podcast, so I think I can say that, right? But you she's- say whatever you'd like, yes. She's fearless. She would take on anyone and she does it with her heart on her sleeve. And uh, it's it's been an incredible transformation. And I'm proud to have seen it. I'm proud to know her and to work alongside with her because I think we need more strong women. And Eliza was a strong woman. That much is clear. You know, despite what people know about her, her life and death, she had many lessons for us. And I think she would be glad to see her story inspire people to make change in their own lives um, that gets them to a position of strength. Uh, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, so, Jen, once you unmute again, so take us through it. The first phase was fear and a lot of anxiety. How long does that last? And then what What do you remember what the next phase was after that? So I, I would say that it probably lasts forever, but it changes. Um, you know, the next step was probably sadness. Um, initially I, I didn't have time to be sad. I mean, of course my heart was shattered. I am heartbroken. I am a piece of my heart was taken that day and will never be what it was. But, um, I would say through the help of therapists, um, medication and through the work of speaking up and becoming an advocate and an activist, I have, been able to, you know, get past, or I would say, I would say get through some of those brutal stages or at least initial stages. But the interesting thing about grief is that it comes and goes and it's like a roller coaster and you never really know what will trigger it. And the difficulty here, especially with my mom's case is it's still a an open investigation. And well, I don't think that if I had the answers tomorrow, I could just package up all of my 
initial stages of grief and just move on to like a final stage. But I do think that the, you know, active nature of the case contributes to the roller coaster that Mm. I continue to be on. Absolutely. No doubt about it. So what, when was the absolute, saddest moment you're talking about the sadness stage and i'm sure i mean sadness is the entire time obviously but was there a complete rock bottom moment and if so what was it definitely so i mean and i've had some pivotal life moments happen without my mom's you know since she was killed i got married i got engaged i got married i finished my nurse practitioner program started my first np job so many big things that have happened for me um but the most rock bottom saddest moment for me was becoming a mother myself without my own mother. I mean, my mom was a labor and delivery nurse and truly like the mother of all mothers. And I know I'm biased and I can say that because she was my own, but I mean, she truly, it was her calling in life, you know, that she was a nurse in labor and delivery and then in fertility, helping other women become mothers. And she was the most incredible mother to her four children. And then like the surrogate or second mom to so many of our friends growing up. And we used to talk all the time and, and almost daydream about me becoming a mom and her being there. And I mean, she was even able to, she always said, whoever you end up marrying, Jen, they're going to have to move out while you're pregnant and I'll have to move in because you'll be an absolute nightmare. (laughs) And she was right, but I didn't have her here. And there's nothing like it to just not have your mom to call and ask even the most simple question of like, ooh, is is that a normal thing for a baby to do? Or what do you think I should do? None of that. Or even when I was pregnant, is this normal? I had no idea what to expect. Sure. Well, it sounds like which makes it, it makes this tremendously sad is that almost it's almost as if and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost as if every happy event, every joyous occasion, every milestone moment, while it, it's great and exciting, it was you, you felt almost probably the same level of sadness that loomed over the the whole situation because she wasn't there to experience it with you. So it it was almost like it was probably easier at times to just have the the mediocre and non-events, right? Versus these big moments. A hundred percent. That's exactly right. Anytime, even, even now with my children, like if it's a beautiful moment, I'm still sad that she's not there. And I'm sad that that experience was stolen from her and from them. Mm. Absolutely. What comes after sadness though? Once you get through that phase, is there, is there, are there more phases to it? There is um, empowerment. There is inspiration. There is still sadness. There's still anxiety. There's still, um, you know, wishful thinking and that I could go back in time and, and frustration with the justice system. Um, But, those days are more far and and fewer and the days of growth and strength and inspiration to live life um in her honor and a little bit more to improve life for others mm-hmm. and to make sure that her name and her face and her story 
and not just how she died, but how she lived is never forgotten. Absolutely. And and that's what Sarah mentioned before as well. And I know that's become a big part of your mission. You guys had the charity event earlier this year, I believe, at Canterbury, uh, where you were mm-hmm. raising awareness and, and money and all those things in, in her honor. And I know you guys will continue to do those things. Um, we've linked it up here in the show notes for anyone that wants to donate. You can go donate the at the Eliza Sherman Fund through the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. I think you guys have raised like over 150000 on there, I think I saw the other day. Yeah. And um, I assume that you'll continue to do things to keep her name and legacy alive. Um, but again, the big thing that that looms over all of us, everyone that cares, the community, the city of Cleveland. I mean, right now, what a stain, in my opinion, on our city of Cleveland, the detectives, the police, anyone that's involved in, in this keeping our streets safe. You've got the video, uh, how, how nobody has been brought to justice um, still is astonishing to me. When that day happens, because I believe that it's not if, but when, and I know you know that it's not if, but when, um, what will that day mean to you? Um, Sarah knows this about me for sure, but um, one, it's going to, I'll have to see it to believe it. You know, I, you can call me, but I won't believe it until I see it. What will it mean though? So of course I will be relieved that there is a monster that was capable of doing something so horrific off the streets and hopefully never able to hurt another soul again. But the reality that I think, and maybe it's a protective mechanism of mine, is that it will never be enough. Uh, It will be good. It will be a step in the right direction. And to me, it'll be almost like the very minimum that my mom deserves. Um, It will be a day that, of course, I'll be very happy to hear it. But it'll come with, I'm sure, a a mix, a bag of mixed emotions there too, you know, Um, because today justice means a lot more than just putting those individuals or the individual behind bars. That's, that's step one, but improving the justice system and the domestic relations court, improving the training and awareness of our law enforcement and our healthcare providers and our social workers and, you know, anyone in the community, just spreading awareness and having more accessible resources is to me what looks like justice as well. Uh, Sarah, will there be justice in this case? And and, uh, if so, what will that day mean to you? Well, I think that just in the arc of Elisa's story, that's certainly the climax (laughs) that will get everyone's attention. Um, And it will feel good for everybody, I think, uh, uh, to get to a point. And I hope that whoever did this to her is out there also nervous about that day and knowing that it's coming. Um, sure. But I think, you know, as as Jen said, it doesn't bring her back. It doesn't change the reality and, and the depths of um, sadness and frustration and things that tension that they have had to deal with and that will always impact Jen's family. But I think that she's not going to let it stay in the future. She's going to let uh, her children, you know, 
carry on hope um, and happiness in their lives. And you and you see that if you know Jen as a person, as I do, you know, in, in her personal life, that's so important to her that her mom is associated with ladybugs and butterflies and flowers and things of beauty, because mm. that's really where she lives in Jen's heart. So I think for the rest of us, it'll be about time for this to get there, to see it happen. And I hope that it will give hope to other families because that's something that Jen has also always pushed for that, you know, even though the circumstances of her mom's death were sort of specific, that there are a lot of unsolved homicides in Cuyahoga County, in Cleveland proper. And we would like to see justice for all of their families. No doubt about it. Well, this is um, an incredibly difficult even a difficult conversation to have. I can't imagine what it's been like for you and your family. I, 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 most people should never know from it. Most people will never know from it. And what you're doing now, this empowered stage, this, this inspired stage has got to be make your mom has to be just smiling and shining down upon you and your family and everyone that's in it, in it for the long haul, of course, to see justice, um, to finish it off. Jen, my last question for you is, is uh, what's your message? What's your message out there to um, maybe the victims, maybe other families, victims, maybe to the perpetrators in this case, maybe there's more than one, who knows? What's your message to both sides as we close this up? One quick thing to throw in is I agree with you. Um, I think, I think my mom is proud, but I think more than anything, She's happy to see, you know, I'm one of three, I'm her only daughter of four kids. I have three brothers and she raised me, her only daughter to be tough. And I think she would be not surprised, but definitely very proud to see that come to life. Um, And she, she would say like, keep going and to, to all women out there, you know, be smart, educate yourselves and um, stand up for yourself. Use your voice. Um, and so my message to other families out there is to not be afraid to use your voice and be persistent and advocate and reach out for help. Don't be afraid to reach out for help and whatever that looks like for you. Um, and to the individual or individuals responsible for brutally murdering my mother, I, I just, you know, I hope that your day comes sooner than later and um, you get what you deserve. I'm, I'm a believer in karma. So, and, you know, I guess lastly, you know, my mom, and it's funny because as we're wrapping this up, like the sun is shining through my window so bright right now. And it's like, my mom is, I truly believe she's, she communicates with me through signs and she is saying, you know, she's still here. Her, her voice is still very much heard and her light continues to shine um, just because she was brutally taken from this earth from a physical standpoint. Um, you know, she will continue to inspire and do all of the wonderful things she did, even if she was taken from us physically. Well, uh, if you're listening, Aliza, happy belated because we just would have been celebrating your birthday two days ago. So, uh, that's pretty symbolic as we finish it off here. Uh, ladies, thank you so much. Um, really wishing the best to both of you and, and Jen, especially to you and your family. Um, I, I pray to God that we witness justice in this case and we just have to keep going. So thank you so much for coming on today and being open. 
Thank you for having us. And um, also want to throw out there that there is a $100,000 reward for any information that leads to an arrest in Cuyahoga County. So you can contact Crime Stoppers and remain anonymous. So um, I encourage anyone, no matter what it may be, big or small, you never know what missing link may may make the world of a difference. And we would be so grateful. So thank you. And thanks for having us, Nate. Absolutely. And just on that uh, note, we did link up the uh, Crime Stoppers email, and then you could also see the phone number. So that is in the show notes. If anyone wants to go there, if you know anything, if you've heard things, you could like like you said, Jen, remain anonymous, but make an impact. So uh, thank you again. Last yeah, thing I want to so throw much, in. Nate. Hold Thanks, on, Sarah. Sarah. Hold on. I need to say one line about Sarah that I would tell everyone else, which is that from darkness can come light. And Sarah, to me, is one of the bright spots in my life that came from my mother's death, because I don't know if I would have ever met Sarah um, had my mother never been killed. Um, of course, I think we all wish we could go back in time. And as much as I love you, Sarah, of course, we would. If my mom could still be here today, maybe we would have. But I gained such a beautiful soul sister in the process. And Sarah continues to stand by me and advocate for my mom. And I just know for certain that my mom sent you into my life. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I know, and I feel that too. I feel that for whatever reason we were supposed to meet and I think it would have been, I think it still would have happened hopefully under much happier circumstances, but now we know our mission and we're going to keep at it. 